We are going to be studying uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2. So if you'd like to turn there uh, and be prepared for that, that's where we're going to actually be focusing. But in the meantime, I'm going to read uh, two other passages of Scripture that we will be referring to as well. So uh, if you're at Ephesians 2, mark that. And uh, please turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Please also mark this because we're going to be uh, returning back to this uh, 1 Corinthians 3 passage. So, uh, oftentimes people see this passage as a passage dealing with um, individual Christian sanctification and edification, building with stones and, and gems and, precious, and not wood, hand, stubble. It's not. This is a passage about the local church, and I want you to see that and understand that in its context. So um, Paul writes, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal, for there are for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and, and behaving like mere men? For when, when, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? For who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you received the word, you, rec you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you, plural, are God's field, you, plural, are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will, make, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know, these yous are all plural, do you not know that the, you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and also mark the 1 Peter 2 passage as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 1391. 1 Peter 2, 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means put to shame. And that's a quote from Isaiah 28. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, if you'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, um, this is where we're going to study, and let's pray together as we prepare our hearts. Father in heaven, we ask that you would come now and that you would open your word, you would help us, you would teach us, you would lead us, you would bless us, you would be with us. Please, Father, please help us to see and to understand that which you have for us this day. For us, in this place, at this moment, we believe you, the eternal God, have a message for us. Please help us to hear. Help us to hear and to believe and to embrace. Help us to take these things and work them out in our lives, we pray. Bless and be with us now, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and the church in Ephesus, from all that we can gather, probably, absolutely, positively true, had no church building. They had no church building. They met in rented facilities, and that's what churches did back then. There was no real church buildings for about three centuries, so they didn't have a church building. Um, they were, in the book of Acts, we're told that Paul rented a place called the School of Tyrannus, which was a Greek sort of uh, auditorium of some sort, and that may be where they, where they met, they continued to meet. I, twice in my life, uh, was a pastor of churches that were meeting in rented facilities. And when you meet in rented facilities, everything is very temporal. Like you, you all open up folded chairs and you put the folded chairs out and you, have, you may have a stage or you have a, a music stand. And if you have any kind of sound, you have to bring it all in then you have to take it all out. Uh, everything is uh, styrofoam cups and, and, and that. And then you have to clean it all up and get it all out uh, because you've just rented the facility. And uh, you, it's very humble. It's very ad hoc. Uh, this church actually began for the first four years in its life uh, down right down the road here at the gun club. And so that was their, they were rented facilities. And uh, there's something interesting about that, and we're going to talk about this. But at this point, you just think about the church in Ephesus. There were Jews, there were, there were, there were, there were Greeks, there were slaves in that church, there were free people in that church, there were uh, young children in that church. We know all this because Paul's going to address them. There were families in that church, there were single people in that church, there were people from all kinds of backgrounds and such, and they were sitting on their folded chairs, if we could put it that way, with their styrofoam cups, if we could put it that way, and they were, they looked like an ad hoc sort of humble group of people mishmashed all together. And if they looked out their window, they actually could see one of the seven greatest wonders of the ancient world, Okay. Now, we're going to talk about this because we're going to actually talk about two things today 
as we, as we look at this. And, and the two questions we're going to ask and we're going to seek to answer is this. One is this. Where can we meet God? Is there a place where we can go and meet God? And we're going to look at how they would have answered this and then how Paul answered this for us today. And then the second question that we're going to look at, because Paul is dealing with this, is who are we? Who are we? And of course, some of these questions of our identity and that are some of the greatest questions that people are wrestling with today. Who are we? What, what is my identity? Who am I? And the Bible is going to answer both of those questions today. So let's begin with the first one. Where can meet, we meet God? Where can we meet God? Well, of course, the answer to that that, you're going to, that most of us would say right now is, well, you can meet God anywhere at any time. And the Bible says that. The Bible says that God is, uh, remember the psalmist says, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I, wherever I'm at on earth, you're there. If I descend into the grave, you're there, you're everywhere. And that's true. God is everywhere. God is there. And that's there's, true that you can meet God anywhere in that sense. But in one, another sense, that's partly right. Let's, let's, let's go a little bit deeper. Is there any place, is there any place where God is pleased to reveal himself more fully? Where if you're in that place, you are actually closer to God than you normally would be because God has chosen to reveal himself and to be there and you can actually get closer to God, nearer to God, experience God. Uh, you know, in, in one sense, I could even say feel the power and the presence of God. Is there such a place as that? Now, of course, heaven is that. Heaven is a place that's very different than, you know, Greenville or Jamestown or, 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 or Fowler. Heaven is different, isn't it? Why is heaven different? Well, one of the reasons is, is because that's the very throne room of God. It's the very, pre you're, you're in the actual presence of God. When people die and they go to heaven, they're, they're immediate, there's God right there. They're like, wow, they're like feeling his glory and, and his power and everything. What about earth? What about earth? Well, if you were to have been transported back to Ephesus and this question were asked, there were two types of people that were in Ephesus. And one of them were Jews who were in the Ephesian church. They were Jewish people. And their answer to that question historically would have been, well, that's easy to answer. You go to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, on the top of the Temple Mount is this temple, and there God dwells in that place. Can I have seen uh, one? So here's an, here's an illustration of what, can this be seen, or do we need to shut some lights out? Because we're going to put some stuff up here. You, can you guys see this? Okay. If, if you were to have gone back in time, now that's no longer here, by the way. That if you go to Jerusalem right now and you walk on that location, what you're going to see is a, is a Muslim mosque. There is no temple there anymore. But back in, in Ephesus, when Ephesians was written, that was, that's what it looked like if you went to Jerusalem. That is the temple there. Can you go to scene number two now? We'll get a little bit of a close-up of it. This is actually what the temple it looked like. And, and if you see that big building that's, that's kind of standing up there with the gold and all of that, that is the holy place. In, in Greek, that would be called the naios. The whole thing, the whole thing in Greek would be called the Hieron, which is the whole temple area. But that building right there, which only the priest could go into, and it has the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year, that was called the naos, the naos. That means the very dwelling place of God. That would be the Greek word. Now, of course, when, when this, before this was a temple, it was a tent, it was the tabernacle, and when the tabernacle was set up, Moses and Aaron stood back, and God came in power 
and might, he came and he filled it. And then when Solomon built this temple, he did the same thing. They stepped back, they dedicated to God, and all of a sudden the glory of God and the power of God came down in that place, and they, 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 they tell us that they couldn't even enter into it because the glory was so great. They couldn't even get close. And so the Jews during that time would have said, there's the place that you would go to see God. Now, the Ephesians would have had a different answer, though. The Greek Ephesians at that point would have had a different answer, okay? Because what they had was they had one of the seven great wonders of the world, which was the temple of Artemis. It was actually larger than this. It was 450 feet long. It was 250 feet wide. It was 60 feet high. It was gilded with gold and silver. And inside, some of the greatest sculptures in the, Greek, in the history of Greece was placed in there. It was an absolutely beautiful place. In fact, listen to this quote. Well, look at this quote that's given by Antipater. Antipater was a historian and a traveler back in the second century B.C. And this is what he wrote. He says, I have set my eyes, and now he's going to list the seven wonders of the world. I have set my eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which a road is a road for chariots. He said, I saw the wall around Babylon, and you can actually ride chariots on the wall around Babylon. I saw that. And the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, these are all the great wonders of the world, and the Colossus of the Sun, it's a huge, huge uh, statue that was built, and the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis, this is the temple in Ephesus, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliance, and I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. It was the temple of Artemis, and this is what it looked like. So the temple of Artemis, it was the pride of Ephesus. This was, what, this, is, this was such a great and powerful, wonderful temple. There was 127 columns around it. Many of them were dedicated by different countries because they wanted to be a part of this. And this was the pride of Ephesus. And if you read the book of Acts, when Paul went into Ephesus and started preaching, and, uh, and they started, God started moving in a powerful way in Ephesus, and one of the things, they had, they had this big bonfire where all these magic books and all these magicians and all this pagan, uh, Greek pagan worship, they were burned, and it was... It it was thousands and thousands of dollars worth that. And then people stopped going to the Artemis Temple. And they stopped buying the little souvenirs of the Artemis Temple. And the guys who made the little souvenirs got really mad at Paul. And they started a riot in Ephesus. And so this glorious pride of Ephesus, this little church with their folded chairs and their styrofoam cups, could look out the window, look up the hill, and see that. And so the question then comes, where can you meet with God? Where, can, where is the temple of God? Now, turn with me to your book in, of Ephesians and notice what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Notice what Paul wrote. Remember, we've been studying this section in Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you, he's talking about the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but members, I'm sorry, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, 
in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Notice what Paul is saying. After telling them that they're citizens of the kingdom of God, after telling them they're in God's family, he now opens up his third illustration, and that is this, they are the temple. Look at verse 21. He says, um, I'm sorry, look at verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. He starts to talk about in using architectural language. And he's saying a big foundation, a massive foundation was laid. And that's the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's a one-time laid foundation. We're going to talk about this because in Ephesians 3, he's going to talk about it. Because some people claim to be apostles today. And that's absolutely impossible in light of what Paul is writing here. And we're going to see that. But the foundation was the apostolic message, the preaching of the apostles. And the cornerstone on which the entire temple was being built, is being built, is Jesus Christ himself, the person of Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. And these aren't ceremonial cornerstones like we have right out here. These are cornerstones that were actual true cornerstones. It was the first stone that was laid to build a building. It had to be square. It had to be perfect. And from that cornerstone being laid, all of the walls would then go out from that cornerstone. Everything, all of the direction of the building was based on the setting of that cornerstone. And here he's saying, Jesus Christ is the key cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. And then he says this, look at verse 21, in whom, in Christ, in union with Christ, remember we've looked at that theme, in Christ, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy naos, he says here. Naos, that's the word that he uses, a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus Christ is the, found, is the cornerstone. The apostles have laid the foundation, and now a temple is being built. It is being built, a holy temple, that unique dwelling place of God is being built uh, in, it, up. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you are that temple. And then notice what he says, and again, all of the yous that are used here are plural. You all, yuns, you as a group, not you as an individual, you as a, pe as a people. Now look at verse 22, in whom, in whom, whom, whom is whom there, that's the Lord, that's Jesus, in union with Jesus, you also, you plural also, are being built together. And here the word is to knit together, to, to fit. Have you ever seen a stone wall? Not, not, not one made out of bricks that you buy at Home Depot and Lowe's. I'm talking about a stone wall that you see like in New England, you see a lot of those. In, in Britain, you see a lot of those. A stone wall where a mason has taken each stone, looked at it, and figured out how it's going to fit, and then this one's going to fit, and now they're still there. In England, they're still there 800 years later. They've been so well put. Each stone has its own place. It's knit in place. That's the word that Paul is using here. Each stone, this whole building, is being fitted together, and it is being built together for a dwelling place for God. Now, notice what he's doing here. All of a sudden, the imagery has changed in the midst of this. He's talking about architecture. He's talking about buildings. He's talking about stones. And now he's talking about people. He's talking about you. You are this temple. This is what God is doing. This is what God is building. And notice what he says here. This is the dwelling place of God. Now, go, go back in your head. Think about 
Moses and Aaron standing before the tabernacle. It's all built exactly the way God said to build it. And then all of a sudden, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire comes down upon that tabernacle. And God dwells in there. And God is saying, I dwell in here. And only Aaron and his, and his, his, his offspring are allowed in here. And you bring your sacrifices here. I'm holy. I'm special. The same thing happened in the temple. I'm holy. I'm special. This is who I am. This is what I am. And now the apostle Paul is saying to them, you are that building. Now, where can you meet God on the earth in the gathered local church? That's what he's saying. This church, this people, these people, not the building, not the building. You, you, you. He says God is knitting together a building, bringing people into salvation, into the union with Christ, connecting them all together, each of them having a place and a, and a, and a, and a role each of these people are being made into a temple, the dwelling place of God on the earth. That's what he's saying. Now, if you turn with me to 1 Peter, remember 1 Peter said the same thing. And Peter, I'm sorry, said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 4. Coming to him, Christ, as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen and precious by God. So again, notice the imagery is sort of personal, it's Jesus, and yet it's architectural. It's talking about stones and building. You also, you plural also, as living stones are being built up. Now notice here how it all kind of blends together. A spiritual house, there's the temple imagery, a holy priesthood, there's the priests in the temple, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice, you are living stones, you are the temple, you are the priests, you offer the sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is building a living, breathing, vital, spiritual temple, and we offer sacrifices. What are those sacrifices? Well, look at verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people, that, or in order that, or the result to be, that you may proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we are the temple, we are the priests, and we offer the sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And so again, notice here, that we've gone from the first question to the second question. Where can we meet God and who are we? All of those come together when Paul says, you meet God in the gathered church, you are the temple, that is where God is in this gathered church. Now let me show you this. Let me show you this. Paul is talking here about the gathered local church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because we have lost this in our culture. And we need to recapture this very, very badly. We have lost this understanding of the gathered local church as the temple of God. The gathered local church as the place where God is. The gathered local church is being the only place on earth where you can meet God in a unique way. Because God has chosen to be present there in a unique way. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Notice how this comes up in the book of Corinthians, by the way. 
Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he's talking about laying, he's, and again, he says, there's no other foundation that can be laid, which is, but it's Jesus Christ. And then he's talking about how he and Apollos and others are building on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, and such. Then notice what Paul says at the end. He says this, verse 16. Do you, these are all plurals again, do you all, do youns, do you not know that you, plural, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now look at that verse. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, plural? You gathered together. And we're going to see this in just a few seconds here. Then he says that gives this warning. If anyone defiles the temple of God, either by bringing in sin, and we're going to see this right in, in chapter 5 here in a few seconds. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. This is amazing stuff, by the way, Frederick. This is amazing stuff. This is identity stuff. This answers both questions. Where can you go on earth to meet God right now? Where? And the answer is the gathered church. Let me show you a little bit more in 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul's dealing with sin in the church because a man was actually living in an, in an adulterous relationship with one of his father's wives. This isn't, it wasn't his mother, but it was one of his father's wives. And he was bring those two as a couple were coming to church. And they weren't doing anything about it. And Paul says this in, 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 in verse 3. Paul says this. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done, so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 4. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice in this verse, the gathered church gathered together, this temple, they just told them they're the temple of God that God dwells in. They are now gathered together, and Jesus in his power is present with them. Here at this point, he's telling them, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kick this guy out of the church. Kick this guy out of the church, send him back into the world, send him back into the kingdom of darkness, send him back into Satan in the hopes that he will repent and come back. But notice the power of the gathered church. Look at chapter 14 and verse 22, 23 and 25. Paul's trying to bring some sanity into the craziness of what was going on in Corinth in terms of tongues and prophecy and all this. And, but I just want you to notice... I'm not getting into all that. I just want you to notice this idea of Christ's presence in the gathered church, God's presence when the church is gathered. Look at verse 23, 1 Corinthians 14, 23. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, there's the gathered church in Corinth. If the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and they're coming in, in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, 
and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God. Now check this out. And report that God is truly among you. God is in this gathered church. God is here with these people. In a unique way, I have come into the presence of God in the midst of this gathered church. And dear friends, that is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Matthew 18, 20, where Jesus said, where two or three, once again, notice the emphasis on gathered, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There is unique promises. There is unique presence. There is unique power when the gathered church gathers together and Jesus Christ dwells and lives in the midst of them. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? What what do we do with all of this? Where do we take this? Well, first of all, I'd like to say this. We need to embrace. I mean really embrace. You You ever see somebody that you haven't seen for a really long time and you love very deeply and you grab them and you hold on to them and they almost say, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. You don't want to let go of them. I'm telling you, we need to embrace this stuff like this. We need to believe this stuff. We need to own this stuff. You know what? Paul, let's go back to Ephesians here. Paul is saying some crazy audacious things. What's audacious? The audacity of that man. To think that he could say this to me. That's how we use the word. Audacious means bold, grand, almost presumptuous and, and, and fantastic. And Paul is saying some audacious things about us. Notice what he's saying in verse 19. Chapter 2, 19. Now, therefore, you, plural, you Greeks, you pagans, you people who were lost, you people who were outside the covenant, you people who were dead in trespasses and sins, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are fellow citizens of the saints. Remember what we looked at there? He is saying in verse 19, you Christians are the naturalized citizens of the greatest kingdom, the greatest government, the greatest political entity, the greatest country, as it were, the world will ever know, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom that will conquer the world, a kingdom that will reign forever and ever. I always am thrilled every time I I hear uh, Gabriel speaking in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel says this to, 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 to little Mary, young Mary. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Paul is saying, guess what? You Ephesians sitting there, some of you slaves, some of you children, some of you, you're sitting there on your folded chairs and with your styrofoam drinks of coffee and we set up and, and we got this ad hoc little thing going on here called the church. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. We need to embrace that. We need to embrace that we are, notice what Paul says next in the book of Ephesians. He says this, and members of the household of God. We are in God's family. We need to embrace this. But thirdly, then, we need to embrace this, that we are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God upon the earth. You are the temple of God. The local church is the temple of God. That's where you experience God. The Vatican City is nothing. (coughs) Excuse me. The great cathedrals of the world are nothing. 
The temple of Artemis is nothing. In fact, look at what the temple of Artemis looks like today. There it is. There it is. The great temple of Artemis. In fact, that pile of rocks there isn't even part of the, it's part of the temple, but they just piled those up. They didn't know what to do. You see, when Paul stood there and said to the Ephesian church, you're the temple of God. God dwells in you. This is where one can meet God on earth. They looked over there at that temple and they thought, they might have thought, this is kind of crazy. Look at us. <laughs> Look at us. We're a ragtag group of people here. That's the temple of Artemis. Paul says, no, no. This is the temple of God. This is where God dwells. These are the living stones. You are the temple of God. And dear friends, we need to embrace this. But let me ask you this. I think it's easier than what I'm actually making out a little bit. Yeah, that's an audacious claim, and we need to just embrace it because the Bible says it, and the Bible's the word of God, and the word of God is true, and it's true. We are the temple of God. But let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced God here? Have you ever come to this place to worship? And have you ever experienced God here? Have you ever heard God's word opened up and all of a sudden that word came right at you? And it may have come with conviction. It may have come with some power. It may have come with glory. It may have opened your eyes. Tears may have flown. You may have seen Jesus clearly. And something happened here. Something happened here that doesn't happen in your devotions. Something happened here when the Bible was opened up in a way that, that was powerful and dynamic. What is that? That is God meeting with you and meeting in the gathered church. Have you ever been worshiping and singing here? And something happens. You're, you're drawn near to God. God's presence is real. God's, you feel God's presence here. And you experience God and you see God and you're worshiping God and you're glorifying God and you're hearing the voices of the other people and God is drawing near and it's different than what happens when you're singing in the shower. It's different. It's powerful. There's a presence here. There's God here. This is what it means that we are the gathered church. Have you ever come into this place discouraged or down or, or maybe losing steam spiritually and, and, and grinding down to a halt and you used to be going 60, 70 miles an hour and now you're just barely puttering along and the, and the engine is sputtering. And then you get around these people and you start to fellowship and you start to talk and you start to sing with them and you start to feel their fire and, and their fire begins to warm you up and you hear the word of God preach and you walk out of this place and there's a sense in which I have met with God. I have been in the presence of God. I have been with God's people. These people have encouraged me. These people have helped me. And that's what it means, dear friends. There is no substitute on earth for the local gathered church. None. And here I will even add parachurch organizations, and I love them dearly, and I'm a part of them. Parachurch outside the church, alongside the church organizations. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, love Billy Graham. That's not the local church. Schools, theological seminaries, Christian hospitals, Christian orphanages, Christian outreaches, those are not the church. They're not the church. They, and, and, and sometimes they get all the press and all the activity and, and, and everybody gets all hyped up about them. But when they're well and done and they're over and as they come and go in the history of time, the local church continues on and on. There's no substitute for the local church. 
Second th thing that is not a substitute for the local church, you. You individually. You are not the church. You are not made to go at your Christian life alone, ever, ever. Can you imagine this? Could you imagine what would happen if you were to walk in here today, if you were to walk in here today, and outside this wall, this brick wall out here, there was a brick missing, or two or three bricks missing. Right out there, we'd say, wait a minute, is that church even safe to go into? So how do those bricks get missing out of the church, out of this building? You see, dear friends, those bricks are very much a vital part. We're not just a pile of bricks here. We're knit together as the people of God. But, but even when Paul gets into Ephesians 4, he's going to start to talk of the, the church as, as a body. Imagine if tomorrow my liver says, I don't want to be a part of that body. Anymore. I'm going to go out here and just be a liver all on my own right out here. I don't need the lungs, I don't need the kidneys, I don't need the heart, I don't need the brain, I don't need the skeleton, I don't need any of that. I'm just going to be a liver out here all by myself. Number one, I will get dreadfully sick, the body will get dreadfully sick, and number two, the liver will die. You see, dear friends, I'm passionate about the local church. I am so passionate about the local church because I know I have seen what happens to Christians who are connected to the local church vitally and those who are not. And I have such a passion that people will be connected to the local church, and so does the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer of the Hebrews writes this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to, in order to stir up love and good works. Notice verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. There's the gathered church. As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as we see the day approaching. Dear friends, you are not the church. You need the body of Christ. You need this temple. And then thirdly, I would say this. And here I'm speaking right to that camera right there. Those of you who are listening online, this is not the church. Now, I know for those of you who are listening online that there are some of you who are sick, some of you who are infirm, some of you who are shut-ins, and for that I'm thankful for the live stream. But if any of you are listening online and you could be here, you should be here. Zoom church is not church. What you're experiencing now is a cheap substitute. It is a substitute. Thankfully, we have it. And maybe you're traveling somewhere and you couldn't get to church. Good. I'm glad you have this. But if you're sitting at home and you should be here, what you're experiencing is not church. I would never want my family to be simply a Zoom family. I want to see my family. I want to be with my family. I Zoom my grandkids when they live far away, and as soon as that Zoom gets shut off, i like, oh, I miss them so much, I wish they were here. Dear friends, this is where God gathers. When God's people gather, God is present. So I'm going to urge you, if you have made Zoom church your church, please, please repent. And next week, find a local church and be a part of that and get near to God. Dear friends, let's take up our calling as the local church. Let's be passionate about our singing. Let's be passionate about worship. Let's give God the glory that he deserves. Let's anticipate coming and gathering. Let's call upon God to be here. Let's ask God to come. Let's be a holy people.
don't be people who sin and who live in sin and, and who live a different life out there than we live here and expect God to come and gather with his people. Let's be a holy people, a people passionate for holiness. Let's be people who guard our eyes, guard our tongues, guard our hearts, live lives of righteousness and holiness in order that God would come. God would be pleased to dwell. God would come in our midst. God would be here with us. Dear friends, we have this amazing privilege to weekly gather in the place that God has appointed where he will pour out his special presence. We have this wonderful privilege. Let us, let us understand who we are. For those of you who are unbelievers, maybe you've sensed God in this place. Maybe you've sensed that God is here. Why have you not opened your heart to him? Why have you not opened your heart to him? You've sensed that this is a special gathering. You've sensed that these are special people. When are you going to join? When are you going to join the most important group of people on the face of the earth? God's people, God's kingdom, God's family, God's temple. Do not be the people who reject the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So happy today that today is a baptism day. I'm so happy that today we're going to see a man, Joe, formally enter in to the true temple of God, formally enter in to the family of God, formally enter in and show himself publicly to be part of the people of God. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you, we thank you, we glorify you that you are in this place. And this place is not this building. This place is these people. If we were meeting in a field, if we were meeting in a barn, if we were meeting in a cave, you would be pleased to dwell in our midst. Thank you. Thank you that you have made us a part of your church. Thank you that we are stones in this temple, living stones. Thank you for this great privilege. Father, for those who are on the outside, for those who have not trusted in you, found salvation in you, and, and engaged themselves into a local church, oh, Father, I pray that you'll have mercy upon them. I know they're lonely. I know they're empty. I know they're wondering. I know they're scared even of death itself. Father, save them, I pray. Bring them to the rock. Bring them to the cornerstone. Bring them to Jesus. And then knit them into your people. Please, we pray, save, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray.